Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Hello. It is Friday, um, September the 16th, 2022. Um, I'm actually talking to you today from Santa Monica, California. I was... Uh, in Los Angeles for a movie last night. So I'm out of my regular San Francisco studio. Interesting piece in the FT today um, about how Britain and the United States have become poor societies with some very rich people. And those rich people, at least according to the columnist John Byrne Murdoch, who I assume is part of this new aristocracy, uh, is um, made up of about 3% of the people, and an enormous gulf between that 3% or that tiny handful of people and everybody else. The disappearance of the middle class, the crisis of inequality, blah, blah, blah. We've heard it all before. Um, and it all brought to mind an interesting book came out last year by my guest today, Matthew Stewart, The 9.9%, the new aristocracy that is entrenching inequality and warping our culture uh, Matthew is joining us from Clerkenwell in uh, London today. Uh, Matthew, had, everyone has different percentages. Uh, the FT columnist today had the 3%. How did you come up with 9.9% for this new aristocracy? Yeah, it's true. Everyone does have a different number. I think the top 1% is the um, kind of the standard. So the, my idea was... Um, to pick out a group that's just below the top. So um, it's not technically the top 9.9% that I'm interested in. It's the people that are the 9.9% below the top 0.1%. So, um, and that was based purely on uh, the wealth distribution statistics. So, because um, it turns out that um, there has been this huge concentration of wealth over the past 50 years. That's um, kind of old news. And the story has usually been told about um, the top 1% getting all that um, increase in wealth. But it turns out that when you look at the actual numbers, um, most analyses show that it's the top 0.1% that got all of the relative increase in the pie. So it's a much smaller group that have become much, much wealthier. Um, and that's that's kind of the central economic story of our time. Um, but I wanted to see how it plays out in the world down below. And it turns out that the um, if the top 0.1% gained all of the relative concentration of wealth, um, not everybody down below lost. So, uh, in fact, it was only the bottom 90%. Um, and so in the numbers that um, that I looked at, it turns out that this group, the 9.9%, that's the group in the wealth distribution between the 0.1% and the 90%, that group actually kept even during the uh, past um, 50 years. Um, and it, it represents the largest single uh, block of wealth in the United States economy. Um, so those are the numbers. But um, the truth is that, that I, wa I wanted to use that to get at a more complicated, more philosophical idea, which is that um, you know inequality doesn't just come from the top down. Everybody participates in, some, in it in some way. And um, it's that upper middle class, 9.9% .9 that I'm, I'm identifying that I think plays a critical role 
in sustaining the whole system. Um, you know, so and, this and, is, uh, um, Matt, this is, uh, this is the inconvenient truth of our age. I'm certainly part of that 10%. I'm guessing you are. Most of our viewers actually probably are too, if we've got the time to waste listening to this conversation. Um, it's what you call in a, in a piece you wrote for The Atlantic back in 2018, the new American aristocracy. You're in the UK. I assume it exists in the UK too. It's a very uncomfortable truth um, and a controversial one. What's been the response of the book? It came out last year. Are people accusing you of selling out to your class, of getting it wrong? The 1%, of course, or the 0.1% is a much more convenient truth because no one quite knows who the super wealthy are. And it's always easy to turn the Jeff Bezoses and the Elon Musks into punch bags. They can't do much to fight back. But the 10% is a much larger class, isn't it? Yeah. And, and you know, back to your original point, um, I, I don't want to be too fanatical about insisting on it being exactly 9.9%. Um, and the logic of these things um, throughout history is that the number just gets smaller over time. I mean, as, as societies get more and more concentrated in the wealth, the, um, that sliver the sort of meritocratic elite that serves the uber elite um, that becomes a smaller and smaller um, group. And I think we're seeing that now. So I think the book came out a year ago and I, I think we're down to probably 8.9% at this point. Um, oh, good. So we, it's shrinking. Yeah. Matthew, why, why uh, in our contemporary age, why does our class, and I, as I said, I include myself and I'm not ashamed of this as part of the 10%, why are we so ashamed of being an aristocracy? What's what's so bad about it? Well, um, I should say, by the way, that um, I my my goal is not to blame the nine point nine percent for all of society's ills. I think it's kind of a collaborative project, and 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 I I still think that the, the you're not but you're not blaming the the bottom ninety. It's we're not. Well, actually, I do, I do. I do. I mean, in fact, I think. Um, our, our society has emulated um, many societies in the past in creating a dysfunctional dynamic um, between you know, all the classes. So I think that um, you know, many people in the bottom 90% are um, signing up for you know, right-wing populist movements. Not, you know, obviously not all of them, but a, a, a substantial number um, uh, and contributing to political dysfunction too. So I, 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 my point is not to um, you know, single out any, any group people as the sole perpetrators of this crime. It's more to uh, point out that these systems of inequality depend on people not facing um, facts, not facing the reality. Um, and the reality is that um, in a system that distributes things unequally, there's going to be a group near the top, but not at the top, that's going to make a tremendous number of compromises, that's going to you know, hide from itself a lot about what it's doing, in order to get by, in order to um, avoid falling into um, into the bottom tiers, um, and that will lead to a lot of um, behavior that is, um, uh, you know, that is socially problematic, um, and that's also individually problematic because it leads people to, you know, commit to um, sort of personal and career projects that that ultimately may not make that much sense. Matthew, there's a great deal of controversy on the politics of this from the right. They will argue that this top 9.9%, and we're using that metaphorically, as you said, it's not an exact mathematical number. But from, conservatives will argue that, it, that, that the coastal elite 
are uh, are that elite the the movie people who run Hollywood and, and 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 Silicon Valley and the people who run media and law and the rest of it on the on the East Coast, and that's reflected in the incredibly liberal bias of, um, of of universities and and high end colleges. Liberals, progressives will argue that it's still a dominant capitalist class which tends to vote Republican is somehow pulling the strings of neoliberalism. Which of those truths are true or are they both simultaneously correct or incorrect? Um, yeah, it's, it, it, is, it is really mixed. And I apologize for not uh, being um, giving a, a, a definitive answer, which I know would be much more effective. But here's, here's the... Um, the reality in the um, data, and it's that um, as a group, the 9.9% skews slightly to the left, but not a lot. Um, so it is true that there's still an awful lot of um, uh, conservative voters and Republicans in the American context in that mix. However, it tends to be on balance more progressive. So um, you know, Hillary Clinton would have won uh, in, in the 9.9%. Um, and the in the in the top zero point one percent, the numbers aren't really clear because nobody nobody really knows. But you know, there what you can conclude is that if you look at them as individuals, they are uh, close to balance. But on the other hand, if you look at them as political contributors, it's definitely uh, skews right. So there, you know, the amount of money that flows from the super wealthy into politics, sure, you've got some going to progressive causes, and you know, the right right wingers can get all in a tizzy about. Um, about some of those people that they love to hate, but the, the 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 reality is that the preponderance of the super wealthy money goes to conservative causes, the Republican Party, Donald Trump, and so on. So um, it's it's not a simple picture. You can't map from economics into politics. But what I think you can say is that as as a society starts to get more unequal, um, it it becomes dysfunctional. Or to, to put it in really abbreviated language. I think Brazil is the future of the United States. At least the, that's the, the trend line right now. Um, and I, I don't want to predict the future because it could be that we could correct. But um, that's, I think, the, the bottom line. And, and to understand the sources of that dysfunction, you have to do more than just point fingers at one particular group in society. You have to point out how um, they develop kind of dysfunctional um, relations, right? So, um, you know, your, your point about conservatives picking on the coastal elites and so on, you know, there, there's, there's a huge amount of hypocrisy and uh, manipulation going on in that kind of uh, claim. It's hypocrisy because uh, for the most part, it amounts to one subset of members of the elite attacking another, trying to kind of score points. Right. Uh, and it's manipulation because they're basically trying to convince the people at the bottom that, oh, yeah, all your problems stem from this, uh, you know, small cadre of, you know, professional leftists out there on the coast. And that is, um, that is you know, that, that is mostly false. And it's just a way of, um, you know, rounding up votes for um, an even more skewed distribution of wealth. Is it possible, Matthew, that there's this sort of almost an unspoken alliance between uh, neoliberals or neoliberal media and liberal media, the liberal elites, and that the more the more hysteria there is about politics, the more dysfunction there is in the American political system, the less anything will change. Oh yeah, I mean, it, look, um, uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of standard throughout history that uh, the, the people who 
have a disproportionate claim on property, especially, you know, have a disproportionate claim on unjust property, you know, they have an interest in not having any force that's going to take that away from them. So, um, yeah, weakening the government, making everything dysfunctional, that's been the playbook um, for the, of the American right for the past 40 years. But, but, the, but it's not the playbook of the left, but uh, as we suggested, much of the left, or certainly the progressive left, is part of this 10%. So uh, I, I wonder whether there's a weird kind of dynamic here, unspoken dynamic, whether the more hysterical American politics becomes or American political discourse, the less that will change. And everyone's comfortable with this hysteria. And meanwhile, the 10% continues to enjoy living like an aristocracy. Um, yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, it depends, I think, on what you're trying to say when you say that it's becoming hysterical. Um, uh, because for a long time, we've had, in some ways, the reverse problem that we've, we've faced uh, a really significant set of issues, um, I think, mainly centered on economics, right? mainly centered on the distribution of wealth. And um, we haven't really been hysterical enough in a certain way in addressing those um, issues, or we've sort of mapped them onto other concerns, social justice concerns and so on, where they don't, where we in a way um, miss the point. And I, I, this I, I think is where the 9.9% the um, becomes maybe politically problematic and where, you, where I think you can level um, a number of, of critiques. It's, it's that members of this group really like to frame the problems that we face in terms that keep their contribution out of the picture. So, uh, and that make it easy for them to go along with the solution. So um, they, they tend to like framing the issues in cultural terms. Um, so, so, you know, they basically say, yes, we just, we need to change our culture. They like to, to talk about um, race, but race always as a matter of personal um, feeling, right? So that, so that essentially it becomes a matter of, you know, whether you feel racist as an individual or not, because then that gives you the opportunity to either escape or to go to therapy that will hopefully cure you of your, your bad feelings. Um, so they prefer that kind of analysis, which is often a um, distraction from, from really core economic issues. I mean, just to give, make that a little more concrete, I think the housing situation in the United States is, 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 is kind of one of the fundamental drivers of our dysfunctional politics. Um, and the, 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 core of that problem is there just isn't enough housing and there isn't enough housing because for a lot of complicated reasons, but basically because we aren't building enough and we aren't building enough um, for a variety of reasons. But among the most important is the fact that local governments are under the control of, of the 9.9% who don't want to, don't want to build more stuff. Yeah. In, in San Francisco, in my town um, captures that an incredibly wealthy liberal population, massive homelessness, a dysfunctional local government in, um, in your Atlantic piece, you write about the discre the discrete charm of the 9.9%, of course, a play on Bunel's great movie, The Discrete Charm of the Bourgeoisie. Is the way to understand this, Matthew, you keep on citing charts and stats and data, but you're a philosopher, you know most of that's nonsense. Um, is the way into this a kind of a, a, a surrealist critique, essentially, of an absurd situation? Look, I, I think that that is one way in, and, and, and those who take the trouble to read the book that I just wrote will see that um, 
once you get past the rhetoric of numbers, as you point out, um, there is a lot of um, exposure of, uh, yeah, fundamentally absurd um, personal situations, right? Like the, the kinds of things that parents get involved in. Um, some of them are public, you know, the, like the story about the, the people who went crazy in the varsity blues scandal and, you know, mm. uh, naughty things get their kids in college. But so, And some of them are more, you know, idiosyncratic or individual. But I, the, the important point, which I think you're getting at, is that um, when you have a society that is um, structurally uh, running into trouble, um, it will create a lot of lived experience that is re remarkably absurd. Um, that is, mm. that doesn't add up. It gets people chasing things that um, in the end they don't really want. Um, that, uh, you know, organizes his lives around projects that are kind of bizarre when you step back. Uh, well, people are so, uh, you know, we have, a, and I know the liberal elite better than the conservative elite, but then a liberal elite that talks the language of class struggle and blah, blah, blah. 50% of the time, the other 50% of the time want to get their kids into Princeton and Yale and Harvard and obsess over that. So you're, you're absolutely right. Um, you're not the first or the last person to write about this. Uh, in your Atlantic piece, you write actually about Richard Reeves, um, who, uh, whose book Dream Hoarders deals with a similar, with a similar territory. Um, when his book came out, he was critiqued mercilessly, intolerantly. His book, as I said, Dream Orders, How the American Upper Middle Class is Leaving Everyone Else in the Dust. Uh, Richard was on the show a couple of years ago, and he's actually on the show, coming on the show next month to talk about his new book on boys. How is your book different from Reeves? What are you saying that someone else hasn't said? Well, um, you know, let me say first that my, my goal is not necessarily to be terrifically original. I just I want to be say something that's true and has an impact. So, um, you know, if someone said it before, um, so much the, the better. Um, yeah, I but if am, someone's read the Reeves book, why would they want to read yours too? Uh, I think I provide an awful lot more historical context. Um, I think I provide um, something that makes it makes you understand where this fits in. Um, with American history, because I am, uh, despite the kind of tone of, of pessimism that runs through um, a lot of this, um, I part of my origin story is that I write about American history and the philosophical origins of um, the American Republic. And I do see um, a, a historical story uh, that can allow us to make sense of um, what's gone wrong um, and where we can find the resources um, to uh, uh, correct it. Uh, so that's, that's my um, focus. Um, uh, as far as, you know, going, picking on an upper middle class, I mean, yeah, it's, it's been done since the, um, I mean, you Bobo's, I mean, the century, David uh, Brooks, I mean, yeah. And yeah, well, you're, right. you're, you're talking about the, the American Revolution, you did a book, Nature's God, the heretical origins of the American Republic. And you note uh, that you're currently at work on, um, a sequel to uh, the heretical origins of America's second revolution. Is there a need, do you think, in all this, Matthew, for a third revolution? And can America go back to some of the foundations, those philosophical foundations of its first two revolutions? 
Um, yeah, well, revolution is generally a, 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 a bad thing to do because it, um, you know, revolutions tend not to work. They tend to be violent. They tend to uh, provoke uh, reactions. Um, but I do think that um, we need something like a revolutionary approach. And I would add um, that a better model might be something like the progressive era, um, which uh, I haven't written about. So there's another book coming on. And I should explain that um, that this project, as strange as it may sound, it actually originated uh, for me out of this other book, which I'm going to be putting out, very, which is done and I'm putting it out, um, on the um, Civil War, on the struggle over slavery. And, um, you know, without going on a big detour on that, I, I, I would just point out that, um, you know, my understanding of of that struggle evolved as I, I, I was studying it. Um, and it became in, increasingly clear to me that the um, parallels between that period of struggle, I'm talking about antebellum America where you're, they're struggling over slavery and the present, um, they, they include, they go far beyond the um, race issues that we usually talk about um, because um, the economic inequality was a huge part of the story, the way in which that in turn fed into um, religious and philosophical disputes and divisions uh, into you know, versions of, of what we would now call culture war. Um, the, um, the class divisions that were extending across society, the dysfunctional politics that followed, all of that, I think, was um, you can see in the, in the slavery period. Um, and in particular, you could see a, a, a role being played by the intelligentsia that wasn't always, um, uh, well, it was often kind of um, destructive in a way that they didn't quite grasp. Um, and a big part of that was their, the fact that they were willing to come up with all kinds of rationalizations for why the system just had to keep going. And, you know, ultimately it, was, it had to keep going because, you know, that's where their, their, their bread was, was buttered. So they figured out ways to, you know, convince themselves that it was all to the good. So that, that was the, how it originated. Um, and I, I, I guess that historical context, I think, is important um, for me. There, there are, um, I think the sociology is interesting uh, in the United States. Uh, that's a lot of sociological research. But I also think it's kind of, it can be limited. Uh, because um, uh, partly because I think it, it, it steps away from the history too much and um, kind of tries to analyze everything in terms of some sort of you know, timeless set of social constraints. I think that some of the um, policy stuff, um, you know, that comes out of places like Brookings, it's you know useful if you're concerned about how to um, to work on um, immediate policy solutions, which is important, but it doesn't necessarily. Uh, give you much insight into um, you know what's happening in the um, in the minds of people who are participating in this process. Um, so I, I think it's important to take a pretty holistic approach to to this. Uh, sort of yeah, to take this holistic approach, a lot of people write on it. We've had Daniel Markovitz, the Yale law professor, right. on the mm -hmm. show quite a few times. He argues that on top of all this, on top of all the injustice of the system. The elite's miserable. It is making everyone unhappy, not just the bottom 90% who are struggling economically, uh, but even the top 10% are miserable. Do you share that? Or are just Americans in general are miserable people? They seem to me rather miserable. I don't know what's going wrong. Maybe it's in the water here, or the water isn't any good anymore either. But there seems to be a general sort of sense of misery. Even wealthy people don't seem to be very happy these days. 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I kind of shy away from generalizations about... Um, well, you got to have some generalizations, Matthew. Otherwise, we're not going to have any fun. you you got to have generalizations, especially if you're going to write about the 9.9%, which is in itself yeah. a generalization. It's huge generalization. Um, I think that what we can safely say is that they're, they're nowhere near as happy as... Um, they should be. They, they should be, and, 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 and I think they are, um, because in a in a you know structurally unsound society when people are um uh achieving their their goals getting you know the, the financial security or the status that they crave um in fact they are um they're much less uh wealthy much less secure than than they um you know imagine they, they basically bought into a world that makes things kind of unnecessarily um anxiety producing and then you know the result is that they're they sort of get what they want, but they're much more anxious than they... they, they Although, um, Matthew, uh, coming back to this issue of happiness, it's a complicated business. You know, when we talk about these things, everyone says, well, and this came out of the FT piece this morning, why can't we be more like Nen Denmark or Norway where everyone's happy and where there's more equality? But wouldn't it also be fair to say that the Danes and Norwegians are rather boring, their culture's rather boring, and that perhaps unhappiness and inequality is a good thing. It generates interesting books and movies and conversations like this. Who wants to be like the Norwegians? <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're being unkind to those, those Norwegians and, and the Finns and, and the Danes. Um, no, I think that, um, that basically um, when we say that life is more interesting under inequality, it's because we make this mistake of imagining that the, the sliver of people who enter into public consciousness, the stars, the people who succeed, uh, the ones who, you know, write some splashy book, um, that they stand for some reality that we can participate in. But in, in fact, they, they don't. I mean, they're, they're, it's, that's all, almost all illusion. Um, it's spectacle. It's 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 you know puts us in in a, in, a, in a passive role, and we're just imagining that we are. It's like when we think about the the Roaring Twenties, we always imagine that we're like the 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 flapper or the person in the speakeasy or um, you know the, the gambler on the stock market. Um, but statistically speaking, the reality is that you're the person who went into massive debt to buy a car and a toaster, and then you're 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 stuck, um, you know, not able to pay the bills. And um, can you and, go into massive debt buying a toaster? In the 1920s, people went into significant debt, and um, some of it was household. Talking about the 20s, you have your Gatsby charts in your Atlantic piece. So there are certainly histories repeating itself. We've got to end, um, Matthew, you've been a, a good sport here. A couple of final questions. We had Adrian Waldridge on the show as well, and his argument, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, is we simply need to grow a backbone here and accept that for better or worse, American meritocracy, it may not be perfect, but it's relatively meritocratic and we should celebrate it. Um, is there any truth to that? Yeah, there's some truth. I mean, and, and you know, I, I say this in, in my book, look, meritocracy stands for some ideals that we should all want to embrace. I mean, the opposite of meritocracy is, is corruption. It's, um, you know, it's Brazil, people, right? it's, it's Brazil, right? It's putting people in positions of, of power um, for reasons that have something other uh, that don't have to do with their, you know, what the contribution they can make. Um, so I think there is definitely something to celebrate. And, and I have cautioned um, that we shouldn't simply attack, you know, all of meritocracy. And I, I also think it's, you know, part of the historical achievement of the Enlightenment 
you know, that um, we, we hold things accountable to reason. Um, but there's, there, there's a, a fundamental problem with it, and it, it's really a, a kind of analytic in my view. Uh, merit doesn't explain most of the wealth that we have. Most, most of the wealth that we have comes from the fact that we cooperate and that we set up systems where people mm. respect one another and, and can work together. Now, within that context, of course, you want to, you know, uh, encourage people to do the best they can and so on. But the meritocracy myth, uh, and I, well, I haven't read Wilder's book, I suspect he may be trying to promote this a bit, says that all of our, all of our success stems from just that, from the fact that we allowed a few geniuses like that bill gates is just so much smarter than the average human that we had to make hundreds of billions of dollars uh, or a hundred billion dollars just because otherwise we would have been stuck in the stone age um and that's false it's false and it's um destructive and there on that point you know I, um while I, I i think uh someone like markovitz seems to go a little overboard with the critique of meritocracy i think he's he's right that it's a bit of a uh, there's a lot of fakery in, in, in that meritocratic ideal. Um, there's something there, but it's, 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 it's overstated. And we need to find a way to hold on to its good parts, um, to hold on to the accountability that it provides uh, and, and, and ditch the kind of, you know, ex post rationalization of wealth that it has become. Um, yeah. Well, let's, let's end on that. How, how to move forward. Uh, your Atlantic piece has ends on how aristocracies fall. Um, sometimes violently, sometimes otherwise. You suggested earlier that um, violent revolutions aren't necessarily a good thing, but we want this aristocracy to fall. How are we going to do it, Matthew? Yeah, we deal with the fundamentals. Um, you know, set up an economic system that's a lot more fair. Set up, you know, and by the way, I think that that addressing some of our other structural issues, the environment and race, um, will uh, ultimately result in um, in the uh, better distribution of wealth, and that in turn will have positive impacts. So more Biden, less Trump. That would be a start. 